welcome, guys, to the first official episode of Blender Kitchen. Thank you for stopping in see what we're all about. Um, just a real quick recap, Blender Kitchen is what I like to call a food and history podcast, but hopefully we'll grow into so much more than just that. Real quick heads up, if you hear some gentle growling in the background, that's just my cat, Begita. She is very affectionate and kind of all up in my recording space. So let's dive in. In this episode, we're going to be talking about rice, which I feel like sometimes rice can come off as such a boring food or like a it's a quote unquote bad food for you because it's mostly carbs. Um, but as a carb aficionado myself, I always like to say there's a time and place for carbs. So um, there's a time and place for rice, definitely. Um, the most interesting thing about rice is it's really in every continent. Literally everyone eats rice with the exception of Antarctica, which um, that's so interesting, honestly, that even in the Arctic Circle, people are eating rice. So let's start with some of the origins of rice. Where did it come from? How did it get to what it is as we know it today? And then we're going to really talk about, um, you know, where we are with rice culturally. So today there are really two kinds, two strains of rice that are mostly cultivated. Um, the first is orzo sativa from the Latin meaning um, cultivated rice. Um, it's also known as Asian rice. And honestly, this is, if you've had rice, you've probably had orzo sativa. Uh, it's uh, adapted to grow nearly anywhere. And because of that, it's really made it into a lot of our diets. The other kind of uh, rice that is uh, really, if if you're going, oh, it's I'm having one of two kinds of rice, it's orzo I'm probably going to say this wrong, but let's have a go. Glaberima, which is from the Latin meaning smooth rice. Um, This is also known as African rice. So one of the reasons that you're not really going to be finding African rice um, on your daily table, you know, uh, your daily rice offerings, is because it's not really... um, farmed so much for profit anymore. Uh, From the research I did, it looks like this rice is mainly being grown as a subsidence crop, which means people are growing it to feed just themselves and their families. It's not a large-scale farming deal. Um, Let's head back to Orzo Sativa for a minute, really get into the nitty-gritty of that. So this rice... um, was classified in 1987 by J.C. Glasman, and it was grouped into several subsections. There's the Haponica ursinica. Um, This rice is mostly sticky. It grows in mainly dry fields. Um, We would think of 
uh, rice fields in East Asia, the uplands of Southeast Asia, the high elevations of South Asia. Um, this is a temperate rice. It doesn't really need like a lot of that rain and tropical culture that we think of when we think of rice growing or rice being farmed. Um, now, orzo um, sativa, the indica grouping, that's a non-sticky rice. That's going to be growing in tropical Asia. That's the rice that we think of that's submerged growing in rice patties. Um, in addition, there's uh, aromatica, aus riata, and ashira. Those are all together the groupings that J.C. Glassman um, discovered in 1987. Now, when did we really start bringing down uh, our rice selections to these two main strains? So, orza sativa was uh, first domesticated, it's thought, uh, roughly between 8,200 years ago and 13,500 years ago in the Pearl River Valley in China. That's a long time. Rice has basically been around for as long as humans have been keeping written records. I'm sure that written records have been longer. But for at least as long as we've been keeping written records, we've been eating rice. And this rice, the orsa sativa, was domesticated from a wild Asian rice known as orza rufi pongon. Again, my Latin is about as good as my French, and that is to say terrible. So please excuse these pronunciations. Work with me here. So how did an Asiatic rice make it um, to the rest of the world, really? Um, several reasons. This is a very versatile crop. It grows well basically anywhere, uh, and it adapts really well to different growing environments, which make it a great rice for shipping uh, and for, you know, areas that have winter and colder climes or don't maybe get as much rain as other parts. Um, but in addition, it was brought to the New World. Um, Portugal um, brought... Uh, rice to Brazil and introduced it into Brazil through their, um, I know the really politically correct way is to say their colonialization efforts, but really their um, rude entry into Brazil, we'll say that, uh, and rice was brought into Central and South America by the Spaniards, uh, those from Spain. Um, so this rice, being that it makes up a great amount of our diet is probably more recognizable. You know, this is probably looking more like the rice that you would find in your grocery store, the parboiled, you know, definitely um, your risotto rice, you know, like rice. It's when you think of rice, you're probably thinking of orzo sativa. Moving on now to orzo glabaremia or African rice. Now, this rice was domesticated from Orzo Berithi, which is wild African rice. It's thought that 
This rice was domesticated between 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. Still a very long time, but not quite as long as um, Asian rice. It was first domesticated in the inner delta of um, the upper Niger River in what is present-day Mali. 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 Guys, I'm... I'm good at pronouncing some things and terrible at others. So please forgive my mispronunciation of some of these words. I'm really working on it. Um, so that rice first had its genome sequence in 2014, which is really how they were able to trace it back to um, Orzobarthi and its cultiv- cultivation um, in the Niger River Delta. Um, as I said previously, this is mostly a subsidence crop. Um, it has a high tolerance for brackish water. Brackish water is not drinkable. It's slightly salty, and it comes from when river or freshwater meets seawater in estuaries, such as the Niger River Delta. So it makes sense that this is a rice that grows really well in brackish water. It's pest resistant, and it's not very difficult to grow in terms of labor cost. But unfortunately, this is a rice that tends to shatter. So it's not as um, desirable, um, maybe. I don't, that's the only reason that I could really think of why it's not being farmed um, as heavily as orzo sativa. But it, it's a hardier rice from what I was able to research um, if you think of wild rice it's probably more of an African rice this rice was first brought to South Carolina uh, during the slave trade in America um, where people were forcibly removed from West Africa uh, well the slave trade is obviously more parts of Africa, but the rice came when people were forcibly removed from West Africa and brought to South Carolina, and the African rice was brought for provisions, and then um, once it was here, it was grown. Today, you see this um, in the American heritage rice, Carolina Gold. Now, some um, there's some movement to really start cultivating Carolina Gold more often. Um, and it is something you can find a little bit more easily now than maybe you could maybe 10 years ago um, under the brand Carolina Gold. Um, it is a little bit of a tougher rice, a little bit of a meatier texture if you're, if you can call a rice meaty, um, but still very good. Um, now, getting into the nitty gritty of rice. I mentioned earlier that Orza glabarumia, glabarumia shatters. Now, shattering in uh, when it comes to rice and other cereal grains refers to when the plant splits um, as soon as it's ripe, ripened, as soon as it becomes ripe, so that it can spread itself around and reproduce. Now, other rice um, doesn't. Um, spread itself around as quickly. It has a little bit longer of holding on to those inner seeds, uh, which does make it easier to plant and cultivate elsewhere. 
So, rice that has no, that only has, sorry, let's try that again. Rice with only husk removed, uh, that's referred to as brown rice. It has 8% protein, which is so odd. When you think of protein, you definitely don't think of a rice or another cereal grain as providing protein. But, well, wouldn't you have it? Brown rice, 8% protein. It also has some um, great B vitamins, um, such as thiamine, niacine, riboflavin, iron, and calcium. Um, now, I know that I said B vitamins and that I said a lot of things that may not sound necessarily like B vitamins, but I assure you, they are indeed vitamins. If you want to know more on vitamins, so if you want to know more about vitamins, um, episode 286, I believe, of the podcast Sawbones really goes into how vitamins got named, what we call them today, and we'll go more in depth and better than I can in that. Anyway, back to the vitamin makeup of rice. So as I said, brown rice has thiamine, niacin, riboflavin, the B vitamins, as well as iron and calcium. Now, rice with both the bran as well as the husk on, that's what we called white rice. Now, parboiling keeps those nutrients in the rice. I always wondered why we would parboil rice. Now we know. Um, Once you remove all that outer shell of the rice, a lot of the vitamins want to go with it. So parboiling seals in the vitamins that are left. Now, rice has always played a part in society. As far back as 2500 BC, rice was used both for food and tradition in different religious ceremonies, um, different coming-of-age ceremonies. Um, As a source of food to sustain you. Rice is great, abundant in carbs, as I said. Um, I do love a good carb. It's low in nitrogenous matter and fat. So what does that really mean? It means rice is going to fill you up. It's going to give you a lot of energy quickly, um, but you'll still have room for other things. Um, Now, on the spread of rice, we did say that it was cultivated in China, you know, and then moved in China and Africa, sorry, and then moved into the New World from Europe. But how did it get to Europe? Well, people brought it there. It's probably thought that Alexander the Great brought rice from India during his uh, conquest and his time there and brought it to Greece and from Greece to Europe. Now that we've gone over some of these ancient origins of rice, let's really get into where are we today with rice. As I said at the beginning of the episode, rice is grown on every continent except for Antarctica. How cool was that? Um, It makes a great food source because it can grow anywhere, which if you're looking for something that you're always going to be able to grow, you're always going to be able to feed your family and depend on, 
Rice is your gal. She's going to be there. She's definitely going to, you know, be available. Cut that. A majority of all of the rice grown today comes from China, India, Indonesia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Thailand, Myanmar, Philippines, and Japan. Because it is or is a sativa or Asiatic rice. So it makes sense that a lot of today's rice is grown uh, in Asiatic countries. Now, what are some uses for rice? I know obviously eating is one, but we use rice in a lot of other ways. For example, I uh, headed on over to Encyclopedia Britannica, really had some flashbacks to fourth grade history projects. So that was fun. Um, and they taught me that bran and rice polish are used to feed livestock. Rice polish is like finely powdered bran, that outer shell of the rice, plus rice starch. Rice oil is processed for rice bran, both for food and industrial uses. Broken rice is used in many, many applications. Brewing, distilling, starch, rice flour, all delicious, wonderful things. Um, what are you brewing and distilling from rice? Many things. And not just sake. Rice beer. Rice wine. Obviously sake. Soju. Sochu. Um, I did have to look those up. And the biggest distinction is that soju that I can find for myself. Soju um, originates in Korea. And sochu originates in Japan. And I think there's some other... Um, differences in the distilling process as well. Now, the holes of the rice, those are used for anything from fuel to packing material. Um, they're used in industrial grinding. Not quite sure what that is exactly, but it's used there. It's used in the manufacture of fertilizer and, um, yeah. So rice straw, um, what's left over after you've taken the rice seed and eaten it or processed the rice bran and the husk straw is what, like the stalks that the rice is growing on. That's used both in livestock feed and livestock bedding, roof thatching, mats, garments, packing materials, and broom straws. From literally life touches rice... <laughs> Rice touches every part of our lives. Um, along the industrial line, a nice, cute little DIY. If you need a heat pack, you know, to relieve muscle soreness or um, to warm your hands up, a little bit of rice in a sock, add some essential oils because heating up dry rice in the microwave smells atrocious. A little bit of essential oil in it, and you now have a heating pack throw it in the microwave for 30 seconds and it's going to keep you warm. It's going to provide heat to your sore muscles. It's going to provide a nice warm little pocket in the winter. Perfect. So we know how we use rice industrially. We know kind of where rice originated. What are some controversies regarding rice? I know like it's rice. It's something we think of as pretty bland. 
How is it possible that it could be controversial? Well, GMOs, my friend. GMOs stand for genetically modified foods, and that in itself is controversy, controversial. Whether we should be genetically modifying any of our foods, I personally believe that we should for several reasons. Um, we've been genetically modifying our food since the dawn of ages. It's how we decided to go from uh, orzo rufi pogon and orzo barafi to orzo glab- glabaribia and orzo sativa. You know, like that's how we got domesticated rice and cultivated rice was through genetic modification. Now, obviously, there weren't scientists pulling specific genes and putting them into rice. It was more of a, let's breed these two rices together and see how they do and make a bigger, better rice. But that's still gene modification. Anyway, so today, uh, GMO rice is also known as golden rice. It's produced in order to biosynthesize beta-carotene all, which is a component of vitamin A. Now, vitamin A deficiencies um, kill an estimated 670,000. That's 670,000 kids under the ages of five every year. And an additional 500,000 cases of irreversible childhood blindness are caused just by vitamin A deficiency. Um, So, by producing rice, which is eaten by everyone, and that also has this very important vitamin in it, it's easier to introduce vitamin A in places where it's needed. In addition, this rice has a higher crop yield, reduces pesticide use, and um, which causes fews, fewer pesticide-related health problems, which, that's amazing. You know, we're really trying to be more health-conscious and more earth-conscious, and less pesticides is sometimes the way to do it. However, GMO rice is not this uh, golden opportunity that it may seem. Um, it, it has the possibility to lead to government corruption where they're manipulating the prices and the people who really need to be eating this um, enhanced rice cannot afford to purchase it. Commercialization may have that same effect where the rice is now overtaxed and becomes too expensive to really serve those who it was uh, created to help. Uh, in addition... It can encourage a diet based on a single uh, staple food, which would cause malnutrition, which you never want to trade one terrible problem for another. You never want to be like, oh, we've solved vitamin A deficiency, but now everyone's malnourished. So definitely a hard downside. Um, But with um, great regulation, I believe it can really serve as a tool. Now it's my favorite part of the recipe of of the episode where we talk about recipes of rice in different places. Now, I think everyone has that dish that reminds them of childhood. For me, I'm um, Caribbean or West Indian descent, so 
my childhood rice dish, rice dish, whew, say that three times fast, is rice and peas, which is just as simple as it sounds. It's usually red beans and white rice that are cooked together from dry to make this delicious, creamy, wonderful um, addition to like a stewed chicken uh, or like some other curried protein. And it's fantastic. It's got like coconut milk in it and all these wonderful aromatics. And it's just honestly, anytime I have that, I'm instantly transported to I'm nine years old and I'm in the kitchen and my mom is cooking and it's just wonderful and delicious. So I wanted to just touch on different dishes across the continents and rice is very versatile and everyone eats it. So it's going to be a little difficult to get a sense of exactly what everyone is eating when they eat rice because even in one continent or one large geographic area there are going to be several different ways of preparing the same staple so I don't want you to come away from thinking like these are the one way per continent that people are preparing these foods no 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 there are way more ways and you're going to see that a lot of things are very similar what makes them different are the other regional ingredients you know the spices that are put in um So by no means is this comprehensive, but I do think it gives us a pretty good idea of how we all kind of make rice the same. So in North America, rice is boiled um, and uh, seasoned with salt and butter and served as a side. In Central America and the Caribbean, rice and beans, the dish that I just talked about from my childhood, is served also as a side. In South America, there's this great dish, chicken and rice. Again, many different variations of this, but it's going to be a flavorful seasoned rice um, as well as a flavorful seasoned chicken. And that rice and that chicken, they're going to complement each other. They may be cooked together. They may be cooked separately and served together. But those are going to be your two main components of that dish. In Europe, you have risotto, which is kind of like a rice stew almost, where the rice is toasted in butter before um, chicken stock or another um, broth-type agent is added. And really, the rice is made into a delicious, creamy, wonderful stew and often served with fresh parmesan or parmigiano-reggiano mixed in. Um very delicious. Honestly, love a good risotto. In uh, Africa, I found several variations of a dish called jalot. Jalot. Again, my apologies for the pronunciation. Um, It's a spicy rice that is kind of stewed together. It's similar to risotto in Europe, um, but this is spicy with tomatoes and curry and veggies in it. So it is going to be a creamier texture, not creamier in terms of there's dairy in it, but like 
It's going to stick together a little bit more. It honestly sounds amazing, and I cannot wait to try out this particular recipe. It sounds like it's going to be very filling. Now, in Asia, I've broken that down into kind of three subregions. Just because Asia is so large of a continent, it was very difficult for me to be like, well, I can pick this kind of central rice dish and show variations. So, starting in China, you have a great rice porridge called kanji. This is a going to be more of a soup than a stew, so it's less like risotto and more like a well, a soup. Um, I've, I'm sure there are many preparations. My favorite that I've tried personally has always a little bit of fish in it. Um, it's fantastic. It's heartwarming. It is calming. You know, it's very much... Um, kind of reminiscent to me of chicken noodle soup in America where it you know you're sick and this is what you want a parent to make for you to make you feel better is my feelings of it you know guys if you have tried a dish that I'm mentioning or you know you have an experience with um, a food that we're talking about please tweet me at Blender Kitchen, you know, um, find me on Instagram. Let me know what your experience with these dishes are. I would love to talk about it, go into more depth with it. You know, like, we're here to learn from one another. Anyway, so in India, you have a basmati curry rice. Um, it's curry in India is a little bit different than curry in the Caribbean, where it's a series of spices, um, where different regions in India are having these different spices to make their curries. Where in the Caribbean, it's pretty much turmeric-based. A lot of turmeric and garlic, and that's what we call curry in the Caribbean. So very different in China. Uh, um, pardon me, in India. And um, I wasn't really able to find a lot of how this rice would be eaten, whether as a side or like as a main. So please, if you do know... Let me know. Southeast Asia, I found this great dish, Nayam Kautod. Tod. Again, I really do appreciate you working with me for these pronunciations. So this is a dish from Laos. It's a fine fried seasoned rice ball, which is then chopped and mixed with son mul, which is a fermented meat product. Honestly, I've never tried this. I've never come across it personally. It sounds amazing. It sounds so yummy. You know, like perfect, crunchy, spicy, delicious. Mm, yes, cannot wait to try this. In Australia and New Zealand, I found a riced salad, which sounded very interesting. Now, this salad is made with raisins, red and green peppers, cashews, and a soy sauce dressing. It's eaten warm from the recipes that I saw. Now, I try to be very adventurous when I eat, but I have to say rice salad did not seem like my cup of tea. But I don't know. Maybe it's going to be amazing. If you've tried one of these dishes, if you have a dish to suggest, please, you know, let me know. 
Um, that's all I've got for you today. Thanks for sticking around, guys. Mm -hmm.